Hello, friends. Hello, friends, and welcome to the first official episode of Improv and Magic. I'm your host and hopefully your new friend, L.D. Madeira. For those of you who signed up to this podcast a few weeks ago, thank you so much for hanging on. My very first guest is someone who I've had the pleasure of knowing for 19 years. He's someone who I don't call my friend. I call him my brother. He is David Christopher. David is one of the original founders of my home theater, Just the Funny, in Miami, Florida. He is also the producer of the Miami Improv Festival and has his own business called Interactive Training Solutions, where he teaches the craft of improv to people in the business world. Very interesting. He's performed and taught improv all over the country, and he's influenced so many people, including myself. In this interview, we discuss how he actually started out in film. We talk about Just the Funny's early beginnings and how the company got started. And we even talk about how David became a performer without actually wanting to be a performer. So much interesting stuff in this interview. He's been a big influence to me, and I certainly hope he'll be a big influence to you as well. Here is David Christopher on episode one of Improv and Magic. Well, I'm here right now with my first ever guest here on the podcast. He is the wonderful, the amazing Mr. David Christopher. How are you doing, Dave? Doing good. How about you? I'm doing great. So about three weeks ago, we finished our... Um, our fever pitch show at Just the Funny. It was our 11 o'clock show. Yeah. And I was very happy with it. And then I came up to you afterwards and said, hey, David, I'm doing this podcast and I want you to be my first guest. And you sounded really surprised. Yeah, I was, I, well, surprised in that I didn't know about the podcast. So there was that. <laughs> but uh, really humbled and honored that you would that you would want me to be your first. I mean, there's plenty of people out there that I'm sure you could approach and, and um, probably more worthwhile people, but honored and humbled that you would think of me. So thank you. Well, you and I have known each other for 19 years now. Yeah. Uh, we've known each other a very, very long time. And, uh, you know, when I was conceiving this idea, I knew that the only person I would want as my first guest is you because you have helped me in, so many ways. I mean, I don't look at you as a friend. I look at you as a brother, really. Absolutely. And you have helped develop me over the years as you've helped develop so many others. And uh, yeah, I mean, how could I not have you as my first guest, you know? Well, thank you. Um, I don't know. It, I think that running a theater, being, um, being an instructor, a teacher, a fellow performer, a director... Uh, the goal is to always do your best work, but also to affect other people in a positive way. So if that's happened, then that's great. I'm happy. Well, you are definitely one of the busiest people that <laughs> I know. You, you've always got something going on. It's, if it's not for the theater, it's for the festival. And if it's not that, it's for biking. And if it's not that, it's, it's for family. I mean, how do you manage to just do so much and a lot of times you have to do a lot in a little amount of time. It's not easy. Um, I like a full life. I, I don't, I'm not good at sitting around. Um, that's, that's part of that. The other thing is I learned a while back that improv became my life. It happens to so many improvisers. 
like improv starts to become the all consuming thing because we put so much into it. It's something we want to be great at. So we constantly are, are trying to better ourselves and then it becomes the only thing that definitely happened to me. And, uh, I used to race bikes as a kid, uh, that's road cycling. Um, so not mountain bikes, but actual bikes on the street, like Lance Armstrong stuff. Um, but I, 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 I got burnt out and in the process I rediscovered cycling and I love it, rediscovered loving it. And a cool thing happened. It made me a better improviser, uh, because I have a different life to complement my improv life and also feed my improv life with new and different life experiences. So that was great. Um, so that I will always stay busy with. And every Saturday morning I'm riding my bike for anywhere from 50 to 70 miles, um, every morning and then going to the theater that night and either doing a show, uh, working a show or directing a show. And in some cases like this last, um, couple months teaching and doing all of that too. So on the same night, so it just, I don't know. I mean, it's an exciting life. Um, work is exciting as well. I make time for family. Um, I'm very protective of that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a full life. Yeah. I, I remember, I think it was either last year or the year before you, I, and our other fellow cast member, Marlene, three of us drove up to Orlando to the, to perform for the festival. And I remember we all drove, I think in your car and you had also brought your bike with you. Yes. <laughs> And so we we did we drove up there. We quickly checked into the hotel, changed, went and did the festival. Then went back to the hotel, and you were up early that next morning riding your bike. Yeah, uh, Central Florida's got hills, and I love climbing <laughs> things. So on my bike, and I needed to keep riding and training. So um, that's what happened. Uh, actually, it was a Friday night anyway. So Saturday morning, it was there again, and. You know, if you're close to that area, you want to get out there and ride. Um, and that was a tough ride that day. But I will say this. I often joke that my bike is my third kid. I have two daughters <laughs> and that my bike is my third kid. I've taken that bike everywhere. That bike has been to Europe. That bike has been to California, Oregon, Colorado, Utah, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, lots of places in Florida. It's been to a lot of places. Do you feel like you're the type of person that always has to be doing something? Like, do you like hit the idea of having a day where you have like nothing to do? Cause I've, I've met people like that, that they always have to do something. Would you say that that's you? It is to an extent. I, if I am home, I'm not one of those people at home that constantly has to be getting up to do something. That's not me. But if I'm out, I'm out. And if I'm doing, I'm doing. And I love doing. So I will more often than not do stuff. When people say, oh, did you watch this series? And I'm like, with what time? I'm <laughs> I'm not sitting down in front of a TV long enough to do that. It's rare. And when it does happen, it's nice. And I like it. But um, just life isn't like that for me normally. Um, I grew up like that, though. I did grow up watching a lot of TV and hanging out. and mm -hmm. But... I also grew up at a time in the 70s and 80s where you left you left your home at 
you know, the minute you woke up and had breakfast and brushed your teeth and then you went out, you met up with your friends and you didn't come back in until somebody was yelling your name to come and eat dinner. Right. Yeah. And so I'm used to that. That's part of my code, my DNA. I'm going to do that. I like getting out. You, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Miami. I grew up in Kendall. Um, I, I literally lived my first 19 years of my life in the same probably five mile radius. Really? Yes. So I, I grew up in, in Kendall, which is a suburb of Miami and it's, it's down South. Uh, it was really interesting. Um, my, my father is Colombian. My mother is from New York. Both of them speak English and Spanish fluently. They never taught me or my brother, uh, Spanish and where we grew up at that time, there were very few Latin people. So really, yeah. So I get asked this question quite a bit. You look one way, but you speak another way. And I, and I think you get this too, yeah. um, and you also, I know grew up in a similar situation, um, where you had it around you. You just didn't onboard it, yeah, I guess. I, I, I am, I am a strange oddity because I, I grew up in a uh, Coral Gables, but, um, uh, I came from a, from a, from a big Cuban, well, not a big, but I came from a very strong Cuban family. I grew up with my mom, my aunt, and my grandmother, and you look at me and you definitely see Hispanic. Um, but for some reason, my brain has not been able to accumulate the Spanish language. And, yeah. and I don't know why. Yeah. My mother told me that it had to do with the fact that I'm a first generation. And so she would talk to me in Spanish, but I would not respond. And so she thought that I had a hearing problem. And well, and according to according to uh, the doctor, because she actually took me a doctor to get me checked out. And th- again, this is a story that I've been told. This may be true. This may not be. But uh, the doctor said, uh, "Well, how, uh, what languages is he hearing?" And she she said that, "Well, I speak to him in Spanish, but then he watches a lot of American TV." And so the doctor said, "Okay, well, he's probably getting confused with the two languages. So start him off with one language, and then later on work the other one in." And so my mom said, okay, I'll try that. So she figured, well, we're in, the, we're in the States, so I'll start them off with English. And so that's what she did. And I guess for some reason, my brain never the, developed the ability to take in Spanish. And not that I haven't tried. Not that yeah. I haven't tried. Lord, Lord knows, I still try to this day. Wow. For me, I spoke a little bit of Spanish when I was really young. And then English just happened because of school and because of friends and and also my parents just stopped speaking it at home mm-hmm. and they would only speak it when they didn't want me and my brother to know what they were saying and there wasn't a desire anymore for that i mean when you're when your peer group only speaks one language it's probably what you're going to gravitate towards right. and that's what happened to me and my brother and my brother speaks less spanish than i do but um i have a much bigger desire to speak spanish now and i speak a lot more than I ever could before. So, um, yeah. So group and Kendall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually I, I used to, I used to live in Kendall for a while too. My mom still lives in Kendall. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. She lives right across. She lives right off of a uh, Kendall drive, right across from that, uh, Best Buy. Yes. Okay. The famous Best Buy. The famous Best Buy connected yes. to a Barnes and Noble. Uh, big box next to big box. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, then uh, for a while you were, uh, for a while you weren't really involved as a performer. You were involved really in uh, the TV, uh, the TV production 
side of things. You were a production guy in the beginning, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I went to high school. Uh, I got horrible grades. It just <laughs> never really was challenged. I always took honors classes, though. Like, I, I, I learned by osmosis. I just never really applied myself. And <laughs> a couple of things did it for me. It was a couple of history classes that I absolutely loved and adored that got me going. And then I thought, oh, there's this TV production class. That's an easy A. I can get my homework done there <laughs> for all the other. It was first period. So I could go to TV production and do all the homework I didn't do because I was racing bikes. And I, I, I would ride my bike until exhaustion every day after school, come home, eat, go to sleep, wake up in the morning and do it all over again. So first period was going to be like, oh, yeah, I can go to TV production and just kind of like catch up. I fell in love with TV production. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I found out that I was half decent at it. So I was like, all right, this is the only thing I can see myself doing. Um, fun story. I did not graduate high school uh, originally. Really? My grades were that wonderful that um, making a long story short, I got a 100 on a final exam to get myself a D minus to literally pass. <laughs> And oh my gosh. like the one time I, I somewhat applied myself and the uh, teacher overrode the grade and failed me. So I walked in my commencement thinking I got a degree and he was the last person on the stage coming off the stage. And he just smiled at me and I said, and I won't say his name, but you know, uh, it was great taking your class, Mr. Blank. And then he just smiled back and he said, yes. Yes, it was. And so I walked <laughs> off the stage thinking, hey, I aced your test. I'm fine. And then when I went to the um, when I went to the, the place where you went to to go and get your diploma, they're like, we don't have a diploma for you. So I had to go back to summer school um, through uh, summer night school. Another story for another day, maybe. <laughs> uh, we're not here for that. But, um, but what ended up happening was this. I, I did graduate high school. I went to Miami-Dade College. My mother had always pushed me into acting. Uh, I took an acting class because, again, I thought it would be easy. And then I got pushed into a play and then was recruited into a musical. Um, you know, and, and that that was like the first embers of like, hey, I can do this and I may like it, but I really don't want to do this. After Miami-Dade, I uh, transferred to New York University. I had applied to two colleges, the University of Colorado and New York University. And the story behind that is I figured either I'm going to the best film school in the country or I'm going to go and start racing bikes again because the University of Colorado had a bike racing team and Colorado was the place to be to race bikes. Yeah. So that's what I wanted, either... The best of that or the best of that and nothing in between. So I only applied to two schools. I got accepted into the University of Colorado in March of 1992. And the deadline for final confirmation where you had to pay to go to the University of Colorado was April. And I think it was April 11th, if I'm not mistaken. On April 10th, I got my acceptance letter from NYU. Wow. I had already picked out my dorm in Boulder in Colorado. I had already figured everything out. I was like, I'm going to be a, a bike racer again. And I'm excited about that. 
And then all of a sudden I had to switch gears and I, I had told myself if NYU happens, that's where you go. Mm-hmm. And I went to NYU film school and it was the best decision I ever made. It was really cool. Um, it was an amazing experience. And, uh, literally I was told you're accepted. You need to be here in a month to go. You start in summer and summer. And I was there in May of 1992 mm-hmm. and that's what got me into film and television. Was there anything specific about uh, NYU that made you decide I definitely need to go here? Yeah, um, they did a, a number of schools had come to do uh, their recruiting visits and they came to our school and it was USC. It was NYU. It was FSU, which was like a like a very new program at the time, up and coming and a couple of other schools that had film programs that had come to our video production class and um, I remember sitting through all of these and I, and doing the research, which there was no internet back then, so it wasn't done that way. But I remember like doing the research on everything and I'm like, the best one of these schools is NYU. And the program that best matches what I want to do is at NYU. Um, USC was a very different uh, program and I, was, I knew it was good, but something about NYU just told me that's the best one. And I knew it was already number one ranked. So I was like, go all, go all in on this. And I never applied to USC or any, anywhere else, not even UM, not, and I could have done that and I didn't. And, uh, I got good grades at Miami Dade. So transferring was not a problem. And I ended up at NYU and it was amazing. I was living in New York city a month later. So, so when you set out for, uh, uh, for, for NYU, what would you say was, was the vision that you had for yourself? In other words, like, what was it that you wanted to do? Did you want to end up being a, a producer, a, a director? Like, what vision did you, did you have for your, for your life? I knew what I didn't want to do, for sure. I knew I didn't want to be a producer. I knew I didn't want to ever be in TV. I had done video. I never really wanted to do it. Video was a means to do film. I was able to take one film class at Miami-Dade College, and... Um, and it was in my very first semester. I, I have a late birthday in the way things worked back then. I was still 17 when I went to college. So I was young and I took a film class. It was an elective and it was at the downtown campus, really far away from where I lived. And I would have to take the Metro rail, which was not something that people did back then all that much at night for a night class. And I went down at 17 and I took that class and we shot on super eight film. And that's when I knew I wanted to be a film director. I'm like, that's what I want to be doing. This is, this is my calling. This is it. Um, and so when I went to NYU, I went to school with a whole bunch of other film directors, some of whom had never touched a camera in their life and others who were pretty significant artists already. Um, one of which was a famous actress. Uh, another one was Daryl Hannah. Um, Daryl Hannah? Daryl Hannah went to school. You're uh, kidding. In my same film class was, um, was uh, Jerry O'Connell. Really? Jerry O'Connell? Jerry O'Connell was in my class. How about that? Yeah. Um, a number of other people. Morgan Spurlock was in my class. Um, Spike Lee was a professor. Um, at the time, Daryl Hannah was dating JFK Jr. And he would wait for her. <laughs> he would wait for her at the school. Back then, you could actually go in the school. And I mean, I remember getting out of class 
And everybody's like, oh my goodness, that's JFK Jr. <laughs> I don't think they cared as much about Daryl Hannah. So it was interesting. It was just an interesting place to be. We got our film permits at the same place that Martin Scorsese would get his film permits at the New York Film Office. I mean, we developed our film at Technicolor and they were color graded there where every big budget Hollywood film that was being shot in New York would get or produced in New York City would get done. So we worked like everyone else in the film industry. So it was really, that's why I wanted to go to school there so badly was because the, the energy of the city, the, the strength of the program, and also the fact that you were never going to be treated like a student. You're going to be treated like a filmmaker, like anyone else. Mm, and that was cool. That, that was cool. That. Well, did you, uh, a lot of directors kind of have uh, like certain themes or like kind of like this, the same idea. And some just like to be random. Was there ever like for you in those like first couple of projects that you did during your time at NYU, were there like certain types of things that you wanted to, to shoot all the time or was it kind of varied? You know, it was really interesting. I didn't have a voice yet and I don't think I felt comfortable with my own voice. I think this is where the improv part of my life helped out a lot um, and being on stage more in terms of figuring out a voice and what I wanted to say and, and what I wanted to be as an artist. Um, I think it was all over the place. I was really successful with that film that I did at Miami Dade. Um, what was the film? Uh, the film, we since we were shooting on Super 8, and this is you know getting really down a rabbit hole here, you could not sync audio to picture, meaning that you couldn't shoot somebody talking and the words would match up. Hmm. Because the, what you were shooting is just literally the, the image only. It's like taking a picture that moves, but there's no sound to go with it. And so you didn't have like mics or anything like that? No, not at all. And so what I did was essentially create a short film that was an, a music video. Hmm. And um, it did well. And I really knew what I wanted to do there. I had a concept and it really just worked out. When I went to film school, I did some work that I was really excited about and proud of. I did other things that were more assignments where I didn't get to choose. But when I was given the carte blanche, I did something that I didn't truly believe in. And I didn't really know what I wanted to say. Hmm. Um, and that was, uh, that was my junior year film. But my senior thesis film, I did something that I, it actually was the best thing that could have ever happened. I tried to replicate the magic of what I did already by doing an updated version of this or a different but updated version of the film that I did at Miami Dade College at a much higher level. Um, and what I ended up doing was making a ton of mistakes. And I have a big saying, it's only a mistake if you don't learn from it. And this was a big thing for me. I needed this. I needed to have a failure because my, my, my junior year project was mediocre. It was okay. You could find the positives out of it. You could poke holes at it, but it was nothing that I was like, I didn't put myself on the line. The senior project, I put more into it, but I really played it safe to the point where it failed. And when it failed, I had to look at why did it fail? I wasn't happy with it. And, um, and it did well. I just, I knew I was better than that. And I 
and I kind of like played it too safe for me. I also made a, a bunch of mistakes and I'm like, how do I learn from this? And I learned a number of things, you know, you need to collaborate. You need to really trust your vision and go out on a limb and not play it safe. Um, also, you need to really develop your voice. You don't have one yet. Well, I think I would also add to that, that when you fail, it's not a reflection of how good or bad you are. Because, you know, I feel like it, it's interesting how today we're, we're always taught failure is not an option. Failure is not an option. And sure, that's true. That might be true if you're in the Army or if you're running like a big Fortune 500 company or something like that. But when you talk about like failure within the arts, and I think it could be subjective in many ways because, you know, what to you might be a failure may be different than how I see a, a failure. But the fact that you're able to say, I failed at this, but here's the lessons I can learn from this, I think is, is such a, a great way to live. And I think that's, as improvisers, I feel like that's such a great thing to have. And I know it, it's such a mind-blowing thing for students, and, and we'll talk about our teaching styles later, but it's such a, a thing for students to see that I'm in an environment where I can fail and that's okay. And it's actually even encouraged to fail because there's there's no other better teacher than failure. I think that's a proverb or something like that. Well, it's part of the process. I mean, you have to get comfortable with failure and you have to embrace your failures. You have to say, okay, failure is a learning opportunity. It's only a failure if you let it be one. You've got to you've got to extract what are the lessons learned. And if you're doing that, then you're you're making yourself better. I would challenge you and say, outside of maybe flying a plane, because I don't want to be on a plane where failure happens, but right. um, you know, or, or something else that's super essential, critical to you know staying alive. Uh, you know, I do a lot of coaching in the business world. That's what I do for a living, and failure is a big part of that. And failure is part of the process. We're going to have things that go wrong. What do we do with that? That's what matters. Yeah, and also to leave yourself alone in the sense that not beat yourself up for failing. Right. Yeah. Right. You, I mean, to some degree, yes. I mean, you've, you've got to, I mean, if you're negligent, reckless, blasé about something, yeah, it's on you. But if you're giving your 100% and failure happens, then all right, what I thought should have happened, didn't happen. Why did that not happen? What can I learn from this so I don't do this again or I can improve? Great, done. Mm -hmm. So I want to backtrack a little bit because sure. you'd mentioned about how people pushed you to try acting. Yep. And it's something that you did not want to do. Nope. Why did people push you to do that? And why was it something you did not want to do? My mom was always a stage mom. Um, I think she just... I don't know why. That's a good question. I've never asked her really why she always pushed me to do it, not my brother. But um, I had my mom and my aunt. My aunt wanted a partner in crime. She was more of an extroverted, outgoing performer type, mm -hmm. like that. My mom didn't, doesn't, um, but she always wanted me to be on a soap opera. So it was like her thing. <laughs> and I remember as a kid, she took me to acting classes. I hated it. Sports, I loved. Um, so that was always where I, I was in a comfort zone, but I never wanted to do that acting thing. When I went to, um, Miami Dade college, I took an acting class as an elective because she pushed me mm -hmm. and kept pushing me to do it. And I needed to take an elective. 
I'd already taken the film and that was the one and only class that they had. So that was done. And I think I had something like four or six electives that I could take. So I took the acting one only because I had a heavy load. This is going back to my high school story. I had a heavy load and I figured this is one way to lighten that load. I was taking, I went to Miami back then. I went to a high school that had a lot of overachievers. Everybody was going to college. I was one of the few that had really screwed it up and was not going to college. I was probably coming back to do 12th grade all over again. If you read my yearbook, half of the signatures in my yearbook are like, I'm so sorry. You have to come back here again next year. (laughs) That's how much in limbo my life was about where I would be, you know, the very next year after 12th grade, I thought there was a very good chance I was coming back to repeat a grade. Um, and I got out of it. So when I was in Miami Dade, I was like, okay, I'm going to get good grades. I'm really going to try. And I'm going to overload on classes because I want to get out of here too. I, I don't want to be at Miami Dade college. I started seeing in my first semester, a lot of kids who kind of failed out of real college, Mm -hmm. come back to Miami Dade college. And that, that to me was kind of like a wake up call. Like that would have been me had I got into college, Mm -hmm. I would have taken it for granted. I would have done all the dumb things and partied way too much and blown off classes. And here are all those kids coming back now. So I really just got into a tunnel focused and did that. The acting class was my mom pushing me and I figured, all right, no homework. This will be easy. And next thing I know I'm in a play then I'm in a musical and then I'm off to NYU. And that's literally how it happened. What, what was the musical that you were in? Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> and I ended up playing the lead. Did, did you play the lead in Bye Bye Birdie? Uh, fun quick story. I was doing the other play, which I couldn't tell you the title of for the life of me. It was just a, a, a play. And I was, a, I was like a, a smaller part in that play, which I was fine with. And during the run of that play, and the run of that play was only like, I think two weekends, maybe a weekend. It's very short in college. And somebody came up to me and said, hi, I, I am the person who is the musical director for this musical. I think you should do this. You would be the right person for this. And I said, I don't want to do it. She's like, that's why you're the right person for this. (laughs) I said, you don't even know if I can sing. I don't even know if I could sing. And she's like, well, we can figure that out. So I worked with her and we literally worked together for about a month. And I went into that audition and she did the coolest thing for me. Um, And this actually has bled into some of the stuff that we do at JTF. She, um, right before the audition, I was nervous. I had never sung in front of anybody before. And I didn't really know if I could do this. There was a piano in this one class. And I think it was a class on like, I want to say it was like an English class or something. It was a really like not artistic class. She dragged me in there before the professor got there. And the class was probably about three quarters full waiting for the professor. And she walked in with me and she said, oh, we've got to walk in here for a second. This is literally like 20 minutes before the audition. And we had just like come from like warming up and rehearsing and getting ready for the audition. She, she goes, we got to go in here into this class. We walk in this classroom. I'm like, what are we doing here? And she turns to the class and and sits at the piano and says, this is my friend, David. He's about to audition for a major part in the musical here at the school. 
and he needs to sing his song for somebody. Are you all willing to listen? Oh my goodness. (laughs) And I just looked at her like, what are you making me do? (laughs) And then I sang the song. And then I realized that's harder than the audition. (laughs) I went to the audition and I just nailed it. After that, it was easy. And um, I ended up getting that part. And the way that it's bled into what we do at JTF, at Just the Funny, is that we really are about pushing people. We've done this through street performance. We've done this through student performance opportunities to really try to get them to find themselves in the uncomfortability of having to stretch beyond just the safety and confines of, of the vacuum of class. So, so how did you, someone who not wanted to perform at all, discover improv? Okay. Uh, went to film school after film school was developing a project with uh, somebody that I was dating and, uh, she's of Cuban descent. We were working on this film that was based in Miami about about what was going on with um, with the whole Cuban Balsero movement that was happening then. We did a lot of research, taken a number of trips down to do the research for that project. Was working with a co-writer for a while there. Um, had secured the funding for the film. It was to be my first feature right out of film school. Small budget, exactly what I wanted it to be. It was a project that finally I did find the voice and was ready and used the failures to get to where I needed to go. I really was at 21, which is ridiculous to think. I was ready for it. And the funding fell through about two weeks before production. We were already pretty much through pre-production. We had our our full cast and crew set. And we had some pretty incredible names um, attached to that project that would have been really interesting to see what would have happened. It would have definitely been a different life if that project had happened. Um, When the financing fell through, I was out of money. I had moved not only myself, but my girlfriend down, my partner, and I had blown every dime on that move and was expecting to make that money back on this project. When that didn't happen, I had to figure things out from scratch. And it was one of the first times that, you know, out of many that I, I got, I felt that I got burnt by, um, the film business. And so it just really stung. It really hurt. And I needed to recover. I saw an ad in the Miami new times. Uh, they used to have, or they still do have the back page. It doesn't have these things there anymore. They have different ads, but, um, there was an ad for an improv group that was holding auditions. I went to that audition. There were 25 people in it. I did it just to push myself and just find another creative outlet. And also to break out of that more introverted side of me. And I went to the audition, 25 of us were there. Um, and, uh, two months later, there were only two of us left and it was me and one other guy. And both of us refused to quit is why we were still there. And if we were those types of people, we would have. Had you ever seen improv before that audition? Yeah, I had. Um, My mom would always take me. My mom was really great about this. My mom is really great about this. Um, She would always take me to go see things. When I was in New York living there, she would always come to visit. You know, my family would come. We'd go see Broadway shows. I was more interested in getting 
a meal paid for. Um, <laughs> but I would have to go, part of the deal was I'd have to go see a Broadway show, boo-hoo, but I didn't care about those things back then and um, saw Broadway shows and they did have an impact on me. And then um, when I was in high school, we would go and see Mental Floss, which was Miami's only improv group, short form only. And it was mainly stage actors that were doing it and, and film actors. So they were operating at a very high level and they had a huge amount of stage presence. They could project. They really had the it factor that made them come alive in improv. And I remember always being in awe of it, thinking I could never do it. Um, and so cut to this film financing falling through and there was an audition for an improv group. And I thought, you know what, why not? Why not? It would change my life, unfortunately. Do you, do you remember uh, what you did for that audition? No, it just went in and did some scenes. Actually, that audition was very similar to the way that we auditioned at Just the Funny. I mean, we, we have a lot of DNA from that group, which was Laughing Gas, and which was what was born out of Mental Floss. Mm. Um, so Mental Floss died out with Hurricane Andrew. They had a theater. They had really built themselves up to an amazing juggernaut of... Of, of just being a theater, much less an improv company, uh, you know, huge theater, sold out shows, great shows. And then Hurricane Andrew came along and basically shut down most of the town for well over six months. And they died with that. Laughing Gas was born out of those ashes. That's what I auditioned for. There were some holdovers from Mental Floss that I still remembered. Um, and... That's how I ended up there. And so I assume Laughing Gas was also a, a short form show back then, right? Only short form. Yeah. So do you remember, like, I think everyone kind of develops their own kind of a approach, especially when it comes to short form. Did you have any particular approach that you developed or any methods that you would apply? No, I mean, I learned again, well, it was different. So I explained that in Mental Floss, it really had more of an actor feel in Laughing Gas, it had more of a stand-up feel. Mm. Um, it, there were actors too, but there were a lot of stand-ups. And it just had that very cutthroat mentality. So I just learned that it was sink or swim very quickly. Nobody was there to help you out. Nobody really cared if you succeeded. In some cases, they didn't want you to succeed because it meant taking away their opportunity or stage time. Um, and it just, it was the way it was. It wasn't by design. It just, it was the way that it was. And... I just learned that my competitive nature, maybe from my cycling days, kicked in and was like, you're not going to beat me. You're not going to get me out of here. I'm going to figure this thing out and I'm going to I'm going to do this. So I found that bigger voice in me. I found that stage presence. I found the ability to project my voice and be big and go over the top and really push stuff. And it worked for me. I, I developed as a human being because of it, and I really enjoyed it. I, I love hearing about how you, the last thing you wanted to be in the world is a performer, and yet when you finally embrace it, it ended up being the best thing for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's changed my life for the positive. I mean, I still was in film production at that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was, I was still doing things. I actually, during my time at Laughing Gas, I moved back to New York eventually I went back there to work on a film and a good friend of mine um, said, 
who was my old co-writer on the film that we lost the financing on, was now in charge of a group of desktop publishers for an investment bank in New York City. And they worked at 30 Rock. We worked. Oh, no way. We were on the floor, on the 50th floor, just below um, the Rainbow Room. Oh, wow. So it was like you're walking in and what are considered still some of the golden, part of the golden age of SNL. Right. You're walking into 30 Rock every night, going past security and going up the same elevators. I mean, different elevators, but the same elevator area, the banks, you know, and you would see some of the SNL writers and, 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 you know, stars of SNL coming in and out of the building because I worked the night shift. I worked graveyard Mm -hmm. and um, this was supposed to be temporary and we were going to work on the film. I was there for a year. The film never happened. And I was working at this investment bank and I was creating prospectuses for um, different projects and preparing them for these these investment bankers to use during the day. And I quickly realized here I am. I am. It's now 1997. I'm 24, 25 years old. And I'm surrounded by people that are 10 plus years older than me. And they're still doing this. And that was a lesson. I was like, this will become my life. Mm-hmm. I need to get out of here. So when you were performing at uh, at laughing gas, I think a lot of us who do improv, when we're starting out, we kind of have that something happens, whether it's a specific show or at a rehearsal where we kind of go, ah, you know what? This is definitely something I want to, I want to stick to. Was there anything like that for you? Was there like a particular moment or series of moments where you felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I'm doing this. I think the big one was acceptance. Um, an acceptance from my peer. One was proving them wrong. That, that was like, the beginning of it but once there was a true acceptance so we did this piece called the mating game which in just the funny we then transitioned into the love machine it's basically an improvised takeoff of the old 60s 70s show the dating game right and you'd have three bachelors or bachelorettes you'd have a host and then you would have the person from the audience come up and they would get to choose and it was fun. It was a character piece, people in costume and a character doing the thing. And the host was usually somebody playing themselves. For me, that moment was, I realized I could not get cast for anything more than what was called light duty and light duty, which the people at just the funny now have it really good. I think improv has it really good compared to those days. Yeah. Um, you were lucky if you got into two or three things in a show. And I mean like backline games, group games. Um, 185, Things You Never Hear, World's Worst. That's it. That was, or maybe Freeze Tag, First Line, Last Line. That was all you were getting. Hmm. So you were there when the entire ensemble was on stage, but not in anything featured. Um, you know, like a two-person scene or or um, definitely not a character piece or Jeopardy. Jeopardy was like, it's funny now. Nobody wants to be in Jeopardy anymore, but everybody back then, that was the fight was to get, the standups loved Jeopardy. Yeah. So um, I developed a host character for the love machine or the mating game back then. And uh, that was, nobody did that. Everybody always played themselves. And I realized that would be the only way I could get in and break into this cast if I came up with a character that was there only to make these other people shine. 
And in doing so, I had gone from performing once a month to performing pretty much every week after that, whenever I wanted to, because I did the thing nobody else wanted to do. What was that? What was that host character that you created? Uh, I knew you were going to ask that. Um, <laughs> his name was Party Marty. Party Marty. Really dumb. It was modeled <laughs> off of a used car salesperson that was smarmy, over the top, gross in terms of I'm trying to sell you. Um, but the job of that character was to relax the audience member, highlight all of the character traits, flaws, or funny things about those characters playing the game from the cast and to keep the energy up and keep the piece moving and turn it into this spectacle. Right. And, that, and it worked. Right. And, that, and that's a, that was a big learning curve for me because it forced me to find something and go over the top. And it also forced me to play more character. Mm. Um, so I, I found it. <clears throat> so now we're going to fast forward to a big year. <clears throat> Excuse me, a big year. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's uh, 1999. How was Just the Funny born? So I started Laughing Gas in 95. Things went well. And then in that last year, there were issues. Um, I'm not going to get into all of those issues because one, I think we've all ended up in a better place and there's no need to really go and rehash what issues were going on then. But essentially, eight other people, well, it all boiled down to one show, really. There was a show in December, the first weekend of December of 1998. And, um, none of the regular cast was there. They didn't like doing shows in December. We normally took December off myself and a couple other people really wanted the group to do well. We were selling out shows and we didn't want to lose that momentum. So we wanted to keep going. And, um, there was a constant uphill battle to continue into December there was a lot of, there's a lot of, well, you know, traditionally this doesn't work. And I had gotten to a point where I had grown disillusioned with not only that, but also artistically doing the same show over and over. And the lineups were pretty much the same week to week. And it was really hard to, to change that up. So I think I had just run my course. We had one show, there was three of us there and at the end of that show, I said to the two other people on that show, I'm quitting. And we stayed around till like three in the morning. We just talked and they asked, why are you quitting? I said, this is why I'm quitting because I'm artistically not being fed anymore. Already we're doing improvised pieces that we know where they're going. We know what's going to be said. Right. Um, and then from the business side of things, it's like, why aren't we doing more? We should be doing more. We all want to do more. We should do more. Mm-hmm. I'm frustrated with that. I just want to, you know what, if, if we can't do that, I'd rather quit. So I quit. About half an hour later, this other guy says, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore either. I'm quitting too. And I'm like, don't do it for me. I'm just telling you why I quit. He's like, no, I've been feeling the same thing. I'm like, okay. The third guy had a lot more involved with the company. He was a vice president. It was really, you could tell that he was going through a dilemma. It's probably the reason why we stayed there so long. And then he decided to resign as well. 
that was Friday night. We had a show Saturday night that we were still responsible for. It just so happened that the five other people that showed up to do that show the following night, um, one of us told them that we were leaving and then all five of them left. Mm. And in January of 1999, we met, we came up with the name of the group, which I hate to this day. <laughs> um, but we came up with the group, we came up with the name, we came up with the concept. And in, on March 5th, 1999, we started Just the Funny with our very first show at the Absent House in Coral Gables. I'll ask what I know is a sore subject for you, but who coined the name Just the Funny? All right, so <laughs> we were at my old house and we were meeting. I had to go to the bathroom. We had a number of names on the table. When I walked out, I said, hey, uh, the one name I hate is just the funny. Let's please not pick that name. Can you wait for me to get back from the bathroom before you choose a name? I get back from the bathroom, just the funny was chosen. The big deal was there was this one improviser who that, that came up with that name. He was not in the group. Uh, one of the improvisers that was in the group was really excited about this guy potentially joining us. And so really advocated for that name. And then it stuck. The funny thing is none of those people are still here <laughs> and they come back and visit. That's fine. But, yeah. but we're stuck with the name. Um, uh, it's basically a play on that line from dragnet. Just the facts. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. That, that was it. And it, I mean, just the word just is not the best way to start anything. Um, <laughs> but just the funny puts a lot of level of expectation out there. And when it comes to teaching classes, it's really not a great sign to have know, behind your, your stage when you're trying to tell people, stop trying to be funny. Yeah. I remember in my early years, I would always hear you say so many times, God, I hate her name. God, I hate her name. And in the beginning, I was always be like, why? Just the funny is a cool name. And you know, it's, it's, it's catchy and it gets people's attention. Now, years later, fast forward to now, when I hear you say that, I think to myself, yeah, I hate our name too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because the other thing, it was a thing back then, uh, improv groups with three names. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, Laughing Gas Mental Floss were not, but for whatever reason, it, I, there were a lot of groups that came around that time that had three names. Um, I can't remember any of them right now off the top of my head, but there were there, definitely there. Uh, the other thing that was really interesting about all of that is this, is that as we moved on over the years, when I do teach, I use the name now. So I don't hate it. I mean, I still hate it as a, as a branding, as an identity piece. But when it comes to teaching, I think it's a very valuable lesson. I use it as, all right, improv is not about just the funny. It's about, and then I cut off, I put my hand over the NY at the end of funny. And I'm like, it's just the fun. You need to be having fun at this. If you are trying to be funny, it's not going to happen. I think it's the lesson we all learn. We all try to be funny. Mm -hmm. And then it's like the reaching for funny does not produce that. Yeah, I think we've all learned that the hard way too. Yes. Yes. Lord knows I, I've definitely learned that. I mean, I, when I finally decided to just quit being funny and just treat it more as, as acting... And, and I love what you said about mental floss, how these were actors, yeah. not like uh, stand-up uh, comedians. Um, you've obviously over the years seen a whole lot of different performers. Do you think that it's crucial for improvisers to have some sort of 
acting background? I mean, they, don't, they may not have necessarily trained at, like, New York Film Academy, but do you think it's essential to have some sort of acting background to be able to Not at all. Not at all. Um, some of the better improvisers are ones that never had an acting background. I think it's a struggle sometimes for people with acting backgrounds. They're great with stage presence. They struggle sometimes with being off script. They're, they're used to that very structured, directed, and, and, and written uh, environment. What's really cool, I think this, I talk about this a lot with other theater owners, improv theater owners, that are in sort of like these, and I hate to describe it this way, but it's probably easier, like these second and third tier markets that aren't the Chicago, the New Yorks, and the LAs of, of improv where you don't have an industry there. So people go to Chicago to become improvisers. You know, they probably are coming in with a wealth of experience already, artistically. New York and LA are industry towns where you're going to already have actors. That's not the case here. We get teachers, bankers, lawyers, a lot of lawyers, um, doctors. We get all sorts of different people from different walks of life. And the beauty of that is this is the first time that they're finding that artistic voice and this is the way that they're manifesting it. And it's so exciting because it's fresh and it has a different take to it than just I'm an actor. And I think, I think what works for us in that regard is that they're capable of being sponges and learning more and doing more because it's fresh for them and they're very open to the process. Whereas actors come in and they've already had a process that they're trying to basically deprogram. I, I remember in the last couple of seasons of Whose Line Is It Anyway, they would do this thing where for some pieces they would invite like a, like a special guest who was on some TV show or something like that. And they'd be involved in the piece and like Wayne Brady, Ryan Stiles, and Colin Mockery would literally have to carry them throughout the entire piece because they just, you could tell they just had no idea what to do because like you mentioned, they're used to the structure. They're used to, I'm going to say this line and then this happens. So it, it was very interesting and I think that's why they kind of stopped doing that after a while because these, well, I wouldn't say they're like big Oscar stars, but they were on like a lot of TV shows at the time and on their TV shows they look great but you put them in an improv environment and they just clam up they have like no idea what to do right yeah no and, and that's happened I mean we've brought in guest people that you think they're going to kill it because they have an acting background and they freeze up or they really struggle with the environment of improv mm -hmm. um, and it's not that we're not open and accepting of them we, we are. I just think it's a, a challenge for them to have to switch that gear that they don't know if they have or not. Maybe they don't. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. Yeah. So this is a kind of cool transition. At what point did you start teaching improv? So we started Just the Funny in 99. We started off as a, a theater that did short form only. We pretty much replicated the show that we were doing at Laughing Gas for like the first year. And then we started really stretching as we did that. Um, eventually down the road, I was working at Miami Dade college. Want to talk about full circle here. I was getting my MBA. So my film days were over and I needed a job that would support going to school at night and getting an MBA. So I was doing that. And while I was working at Miami Dade college, one of the people there, the woman, 
a good friend of mine, Myra Ray Ciara, came up to me and said, I know that you do improv. Would you be interested in teaching an improv class as part of the continuing education program here at Miami-Dade College? And I said, I don't know. Let me think about it. Because <clears throat> I really had to think about my bandwidth and my time. I was going to school at night. My youngest daughter was born, or my oldest daughter was born. Um, so I didn't know if I could do it. But eventually I did say yes. She asked me more than once. And I, I did say yes. And that's how our classes started. And that started roughly in 2002. Mm -hmm. um, taught at Miami-Dade College, Kendall Campus. And taught in their big theater. The same one that I did both the musical and the play in. So it was really <laughs> freaky. And I knew how to run everything in that theater. The light board and everything. So I, it was really weird to be back there 10 years later. Um, teaching something versus being dragged into something. Um, that was cool. Yeah. And I, well, I, I didn't think of that until right now. <laughs> weird. Well, I mean, you've also really uh, uh, developed yourself as not just as a performer, but as a, as a teacher as well. Because um, I know you don't only teach at Just the Funny. You've got to teach at, I know you've taught at the, the improv. Uh, what is it? What is it called? The improv retreat that Tara yeah. and Rance do? Yeah. Tara and Rance. Yeah. Um, shout out to them. We love you, Tara and Rance. Tara Francisco, Rance Rizzuto. Absolutely. Love Hear em. the musical. When you teach improv, what are the main things that you want to get across to the people that are in your class or workshop? It depends what we're teaching. Um, I, I'd say on an overall, I want, to, I want to really empower people and I want to push them to be more than what they came in as. Mm -hmm. I, want, I love when people find that thing, whatever that thing is. Mm -hmm. So I see my job more as a facilitator to help them get there. Um, I recently taught, speaking of terror and rants, I taught at their festival and, and, and that was a big part of it. Um, when I've gone into the retreat, I've taught red light district a number of times. And that really is a class that pushes people well beyond their boundaries and limits of what they think they're capable of doing with improv. And we have these, these really big, big moments. And I think for me as an instructor, I want to push you to be the best self that you can be bigger and beyond what you've ever been before. But I also want to wrap my arms around you and say, I've got you. It's okay. You've got the support that you need. So I think in order to do that challenging work, I often tell, I say this a lot both on the improv side of my life and the work side of my life in coaching and training. I'm going to give you tough love. There's more love than tough, mm -hmm. but my tough is pretty damn tough, which means yeah. I love you a lot too. Yeah. But I, I will give it to you straight, but I will love you that much harder. So that's where we find our growth. I, I think what I'm always trying to give is what I never got. I got a lot of the tough. I didn't get love. So I'm willing to give you way more love than tough, but I'm going to give you tough. That's part of my DNA, but also it's how we grow. You know, when we go soft and easy on people, we really don't help them. What we're doing is we're, we're trying to not shake up the apple cart here. Yeah, I, I firmly agree with you. Uh, me as an instructor and as a director, I agree with tough love. 
Yeah. You know, because, I mean, if you hear all the time, you're great, you're fantastic, you're amazing, well, sure, your ego enjoys hearing that, but you don't really learn from that. But at the same time, you also can't be like, you know, why aren't you doing this correctly? You know, you can't, like, put throw the hammer at someone. You right. just have to continue to show as much love to them as possible. Two best notes you'll ever get after a show are, you all were great, and that has to be scripted. Yes. Uh, it's funny. I, I, I often talk to our upper level students and say, you're going to get the you were great note. And unless that's a grandparent or somebody who raised you, um, who is totally biased and has all the right and ability to be biased because they raised you, um, th- that's a horrible note. It is. You, you are great is is only about stroking you, but also separating you from the people who allowed you to be great. Yeah, which to is me, what it cast. really means is you were great, but those other people weren't that great. That too. That's that's how I usually interpret it. It's a comparative statement versus an inclusive statement. And, right. And that's what I love about you guys are so great. You were all so wonderful and great. Or I think the scripted one we love. I think the other one is when we get a clap instead of an applause break improvisers eat up applause breaks more than they do laughter. Right. Like we love laughter, but yeah. when they applaud, we're like, wait, we did that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. we could do this to people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's the most euphoric feeling ever. You know, yeah. you're not planning on getting any reaction at all, but you say or do something and you get that, that immediate feedback and you have that second where you're going, Oh wow. That, that was, that was special. I, I didn't plan on that. Yeah. To me, that, that feeling is better than drugs. It yeah. really is. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Not that I would know, of course. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to jump ahead now to the creation of uh, the Miami Improv Festival. And there's a reason why I'm, I'm jumping to that. Yeah. Because I feel like when the festival started happening, and this is close to around the time that I finally arrived, it seemed to signal a change for JTF. Oh, yeah. No. Um, we had always wanted to grow artistically. And we were working on that. We really started in earnest in 2001 uh, to do that. And I should also throw in my last little, you know, throws of being in, in production started when I was in JTF and I, and I went, well, just a funny, I went, I moved back. I didn't move back. I moved to LA and that's pretty much where my production career ended. So I, I was running the theater from LA for a year and then moved back. Once I moved back, all the chips were in on let's take just the funny and see what it can become artistically and as a business and everything else. And that gets us to the festival. So we started working on long form. We really didn't understand it. We really didn't know it. We were just kind of like doing it based off of what we could find on the fledgling internet at that point. And the first step was creating a thing called the South Florida Improv Jam. One of the other improvisers at Just the Funny said, hey, you know, I really wish we would do more with the improv community. It's like, okay. So I created the jam. And we invited everybody. Five groups showed up from West Palm Beach down to Miami, which is like 100 miles in distance. Mm-hmm. And everybody showed up. We all did our own showcase of what we do. And then we had... Uh, we split up all five groups and did five different little jams uh, together, like five little groups playing together. And it was great. 
when we started trading the notes from that, we realized that most people were doing short form, but this one other group, Mod 27, was also working on long form too. And the 2002 South Florida Improv Jam was really a tester event for the festival. It was kind of like, let's do this in August, knowing that we have this festival in January. And right after the jam, we announced the festival. And that was an opportunity for us to learn the things we didn't know artistically. We couldn't get on planes and go and fly to Chicago and spend a month there or a week there and do an intensive. A lot of us were not in that situation. I had a young child. A lot of us were not in the financial situation to be able to do that and take that kind of time off um, from work and everything else. It's not like you could work remotely back then. Um, So we brought it to us. And our very first festival was in 2003. We had 19 groups come in and perform. Uh, I believe 17 of which were from Chicago. Mm. Um, it was all by submission. Basprov submitted to our festival. Did they really? Hysterical. Um, at our festival, which was not by design, we just didn't know anybody. So we did it based off of merit. We're like, these Basprov people are really good. Um, <laughs> but we brought in what eventually would become, um, they were known as the Tenderloins. But now on True TV, they are the um, Impractical Jokers. They were actually. We had the Impractical Jokers at the festival? They were an improv group called the Tenderloins. Oh my gosh. They were there in 2003. Our great friends. My father in law is going to love that because he loves the Impractical okay, Jokers. Okay, so they were there. Um, all of those guys. And um, I think even the woman who plays Flo, the progressive lady, wasn't she there? Not at the first year. We okay. brought in the Growlings later on. That was 2004. 2005 I can't it was I think it was 2005 we brought in the Growlings and she was not in that original cast she was I think a year later we brought them a number of times but she had come uh there were people that have been on Mad TV Bobby Moynihan Zach Woods have been at the festival Sharna Halpern has been at the festival Mm -hmm. um Dave Rosowski's been at the festival uh we've had Susan Messing at the festival we've had Second City at the festival UCB Torco at the festival We've reunited um, Georgia Pacific, which was a huge Herald team of all-stars from I.O. Um, We had them come in. Uh, But that first year was really amazing. And we we were able to discover a lot of new talent. The interesting thing was this group called the Defiant Thomas Brothers, the one sketch show that was in the festival from out of town. And they were from Chicago and none of the Chicago people knew about them there. Everybody got two shows. That's the beauty, beautiful thing about our festival that I love. We created a festival having never been to a festival and we designed it based off of what we would want. If we went to a festival, everybody gets 45 minutes. The out of town groups get two performance slots. Everybody gets a cut of the door. Um, and you know, it, it was just amazing. These Define Thomas Brothers, for example, came in, did their show. By the first 10 minutes, the sound of that laughter was so loud and so strong. Some of the improvisers started trickling in from the VIP area where everybody was drinking and having a good old time to come and see what was all this laughter about. And then the buzz went out. The show is amazing. There were like 10 paid people for that show. It was filled by the end 
of their peers had come. I mean, the backstage VIP area was empty now. Everybody went to watch that show. You couldn't buy a ticket for their next show when they performed two nights later. Amazing. Yeah. Totally amazing. And that's the festival. And it's still to this day, the same magic of that. Mm. We, we really seek out how can we break out groups. So when we have two stages, um, we've called our second stage the breakout stage. Mm. We don't do that anymore because our stage has another name. But we also break other things out on our main stage. So there's no reason to call something right. a breakout stage. Yeah. You know, there's one thing that I envy about you because of you being a producer of the festival is the fact that you are able to have all these headliners on your cell phone. <laughs> That's something that I always envy you. Like if you, if you wanted to call Joe Bill, you'd be like, hey, Joe, how's it going? You know, it's something that I, that I truly envy. You have been in close proximity with these people that we in the improv world really look up to as, as demigods and rightly so. Um, what's your experience like with these people that are so well known and recognized, not just across the country, but across the world, really? Like, like if you're picking up like Mark Sutton from the airport, for example, do you, are you still someone who gets starstruck or do you know these people in, in a very different way now because of your time as a producer? It's really interesting. I think with those two, specifically Joe Bill and Mark Sutton, because of 2003 and not knowing who they were i mean this would be like the story the famous story of yoko ono didn't know who john lennon was when she met him now whether that's true or not that's who knows but that's what it was like we didn't know that this was joe bill and mark sutton we just knew that there was this group bass prov and they had a really good submission i mean they submitted to the festival so all of those headliner relationships, if, if that's what you want to call them, they're more on the level of, you know, and, and, and it really goes down to this. I think there's a little bit of business because there has to be. Of course. So there's that part of the relationship. There's the reverence for what they do on stage and what they teach in their workshops. And that's always going to be there. I think one of the things that, and it's probably my most favorite part about every festival is I, I try never to perform in a festival if I can help it. I won't teach at a festival ever, but it's spending time with these people and talking about life, mm -hmm. not talking about improv at all, talking about family, talking about passions, talking about interests, talking about everything else other than improv. And that's where we have those connections. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's cool. I, I was in Chicago pre pandemic and went to go. I was, I was in town. I had an extra day off of something. I was there for work or maybe for the improv retreat. I don't remember. And Susan messing was doing a messing, uh, with a friend mm -hmm. with emo Phillips. And, uh, this is over at the annoyance. And I just, remember thinking, I've got a free night. I'm going to go and see my friend perform. And I remember just seeing them perform, smiling the whole time, enjoying every second of it. And then afterwards going around and saying hello um, backstage to Susan. And it was the hug that I remember more than the show. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think of when I think of these people, these, I don't, they're friends. They're not, they're not 
anything more or less than that. They're, they're really good friends that I selfishly get to include into a festival filled with artists of people I will soon get to call friends and others who are long friends as well. But I don't look at it any differently. I think it's just amazing. And I think we learn about each other a lot too. I remember in March of 2019, we had uh, Stacy Smith come and visit us. And yeah. there was one Saturday where she was going to teach a special workshop for us. And, you know, I'm usually early, so I was there early to open up. And she she uh, was early, too. And so it was just the two of us in the theater. And I figured, you know what? I have a moment with Stacy Smith. I'm just going to just talk to her about, you know, just to get to know her. And we had a lovely conversation. I asked her, how are things going with you and your fiancé and stuff like that? Because I feel like... You know, if I have a chance to get to know this person, I'm going to take that opportunity. I'm not going to say, hey, what's your favorite Herald opening? You know, that's that's, yeah. that's for the workshop. You know, so. you know we, we have a, a do's and don'ts before every festival where we bring the cast in and we talk with them about, hey, you know, these are the jobs that we all need to do and you know, make sure we get all the bases covered. We take care of everything uh, for the festival. But we also talk about do's and don'ts. And one of the big don'ts is don't go up to headliners specifically and start talking improv at them. Right. You know, one, they're being paid to teach and they're going to do that with you if you go to their workshop. That's what they're there for. But it doesn't mean that they necessarily want to. Now, if they initiate a conversation that's an improv-based conversation, then have at it. Please do. But too many times I've gone to other people's festivals where you see throngs of people want to talk to their heroes and start talking to them about improv or improv philosophy or approaches to improv or essentially do a podcast without the equipment on improv. And these people just want to be humans that don't want to deal with improv right now. They want to get to know other humans and have a good time. And that's what we tell them is, you know what, just talk to them about everything but improv. Right. And if improv comes up, then great. Yeah. Yeah. I think the smartest thing that you do to advertise it is you always advertise it the same way. You put up a graphic that says, so where will you be this January? And it's a picture of South Beach. Right. And and I think that's why like a lot of people love to come to our festival because, you know, where else do you want to be in January? Up north? No. It's, an, it's a no-brainer and we would be really stupid to think that, you know, oh my goodness, we want to, you know, we're going to sell you on how great our festival is. The interesting thing is, when we started the Miami Improv Festival in 2003, festivals were like almost like vaudeville circuits. I mean, there were literally maybe 12 festivals all year. Hmm. And you would just see the same group of people go to every city to those festivals. That's how we eventually knew of a lot of people after our festival. We're like, wait a minute, there's the one here and the one there, and they're all going to the same place. And now... There's like literally three or four festivals every weekend yeah. all over the country, much less the world. So you've got so much more opportunity out there. Where I'm going with this is that we would be silly to think that our festival has something over another festival. I would also be silly to think that my festival is better than another festival. I've heard festival producers sometimes say that privately mm-hmm. and publicly. And it's like you don't know what you're talking about. There's too many festivals for all of us to go to for you to know that. Right. And you just put on the best festival that you can that has the identity of the theater and, and, and what you believe in and your values and, and what you want to provide as an experience both for the audience and for the artists. Um, that's what we do. And I think what's really interesting about that is 
we articulate that, but we're not stupid. Where do people from Chicago, New York, and other parts that are cold want to be in January? Not in those places. Exactly. So that's why we do what we do. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, as far as the festival, is there any big headliner out there that you haven't gotten yet that you would love to get? Is there a white whale? Um, we always put together a list every year of what the festival could look like. It doesn't always work out. Um, you know, there's some, there's some realities to things, you know, sometimes financially, it just, it's not in the cards. I mean, festivals are not there to make money. They're not, it's, they're selfish toys to <laughs> enjoy and we're lucky we're able to do it, but sometimes it's beyond our financial means to bring in certain people. We've taken some pretty significant financial hits doing things that have been on our wish list. So we're much more post pandemic. We're definitely much more cautious about that now and, and conservative. It, we used to take some big risks and we've lost some big money on bringing in people that we've been dying to bring in, but it just financially wasn't sustainable. Um, the honest answer to your question is at this point, that's, that's part of what I'm working on is, looking at what else is out there because we kind of know already who those people are. I want to find the next people. I want to find the next groups. I want to help them get their spotlight and get on that circuit, which is a lot harder to do now because there's so many festivals. Sometimes you're a tree falling in the woods. You may be somebody's headliner and people just don't know about it because there's so many other festivals out there. Right. It's hard to stay up on all of this stuff. Um, back in the day, it was really easy. So there you go. Yeah. So to go back uh, now to the to the first festival because I remember being there um, and I and I don't I don't believe I went to the to the first festival for some reason I don't remember why I don't think you were around yet no I, I no I didn't come about till about two thousand four right so this would have been just before your time right and uh, and I remember that um, I, I remember there were like so many lessons learned uh, from the festival as far as how to be like much better performers. Yeah. What are some of those lessons that, that you recall that you still apply to this very day? Our big thing was long form. Um, we really got a much better grasp of different styles. Of, we saw so many different styles of long form mm -hmm. in one weekend that we walked out with all the ideas in the world to say, okay, go off on this path. But to answer your question directly, I'd say the things that, that are, have been big takeaways as a performer, one is that you really have to own your show. You have to own what you're doing. There's a lot of times where people want to come in and do the same thing that everyone else does. Um, at one point it was a lot of heralds. Another point it was a lot of slackers. So a lot of the same types of submissions. It's really about how can you create something that's unique to either you or your theater? Um, how is it different? How is it, how are you helping out a festival producer market that in a way that allows them to put butts in seats mm -hmm. um, and feel confident about that even when people don't know who you are? Um, those have been big learning pieces for the theater. I would say as a performer, you know, I think one of the hardest things that happens and I've been really diligent about trying to develop our cast at Just the Funny 
to do more of this as we build out our signature shows and tour more often um, is you've got to be comfortable performing in front of your peers at festivals. More often than not, you're performing in front of peers. It's a different audience. You're already on not home turf. You're at somebody else's theater with their either greatness or limitations or, or whatever. It's just like your theater. It's still somebody else's theater. But now you're in a room full of people that may have been doing this longer than you may have been the headliner at your festival. Uh, there are some gulp moments and I call it festival shock. I've seen cast members that kill it every week, week in and week out, go to a festival and just totally freeze up. So they go into that festival shock and they freeze up in the moment. So a lot of that has been about how to get comfortable in your own skin. I think that's building your own show that has more of an identity helps you do that because you can feel comfortable in that. And you also know that you're showcasing something fresh and new and different. Um, the other part of it too is uh, really going for it, which is hard to do. It is. You've got to go out on that limb and say, all right, I'm going to put it all out here. It may not work. Um, and be okay if it doesn't work. Yeah. So I was at the Dallas Comedy Festival. I was supposed to go with three other people. The two others backed out. I ended up going there alone. The last one backed out on me like a week before. So I had to figure out what was I going to do? Was I going to go and do something like pull people up and do the safe thing? And take people from off stage and have them come and do scenes with me and make it this vanity project that I hate. Um, <laughs> but we'll probably end up doing at some point again in my life. Who knows? I mean, it was fun playing with other people. Fine. But it felt like, you know, hey, look at me, look at me. And I'm not right. really crazy about that. But what I ended up doing was a solo show. And I did it as a challenge to myself. And I think that's something you've got to be willing to be comfortable in at a festival. Yeah. is to put yourself out there in your voice that challenges you. And if you're not doing that, because that's the work that we all love watching. Yeah. We know those shows where they went for it and they got it. Yeah. Those are the ones we remember. Those are the ones we want to bring back. The shows where they just got through it, did the thing that they do. Oh, you know, you can see the potential in it. That doesn't do anything for us. So I love when people just go for it, even if they don't make it. They go for it and it's amazing. Right. You know, there's there's so much more that we could talk about, but I know yeah. we gotta wrap it up soon. So David, I really wanna thank you for being here. And I'm gonna say we gotta do this again because there's a lot more for us to talk about. I know we didn't talk yeah, I know we, we missed a number of things. There will be a part two down the road. Absolutely. Um, but I just wanna end on just one final question. Sure. And this is something I'm gonna ask everyone that comes on here. Okay. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? Wow. Um, and it doesn't have to be just improv. It could be life in general, whatever that may be. Uh, the one piece of advice. Um, I would say the one piece of advice that I have received was. Hmm. This is a tough one. There's been a lot of good ones. Um, well, you could say one for now and save the other one for the next time. Yeah, I will. I'm going to give you one as a theater owner. And it was also because this is the last person that I went to go visit for improv outside of South Florida. So um, at their theater, at least. And that was a long time ago. 
my very good friend, my very dear friend, Stacy Halal, uh, we were going through sort of an identity crisis and she came in during the festival and I asked her if she could sit down with us and work with us. And we were talking about what kind of identity did we want to have as a theater artistically. And when that question was posed to her, she said, and she looked us all in the eye when she said it, it was so boss. It was amazing. She just said, and I'll use the expletive. You can bleep it out. Oh no, th- this, this podcast is set to explicit cause I know who I wanted to talk to. So don't worry. Okay. <laughs> she said, and I'm quoting her, don't fuck your cash cow. And I think that set everyone straight in that room, myself included. We all knew what we needed to do. And I know that that's not the beautiful artistic piece of advice that you may have been expecting. I give you this only because as artists, we have to understand, and maybe this is the MBA in me, that it's 51% business when you run a theater. If you're just doing it as an artist alone, great knock yourselves out, go be 100% artist if that's what you want to do. But when you're running a theater, it really helped us out because it, this was an argument amongst our cast regarding short form and long form. It really wasn't about short form and long form. It was really about how much production value do we put into the shows that we do? How much of ourselves do we put into the work that we do? And what it did is it raised our tide. So by not fucking our cash cow, it basically gave us the criteria to say, we're not going to shortchange the audience to do our art. We're not begging you to sit through something that we want to do. We're going to give you something that you're going to love, even if it's different. And I hope that I still live by that. I hope that I still can live by that forever because that's what we should be doing. Absolutely. Wow. This was great, David. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being guest number one here. And we are going to do this again. Yes. Because there's hopefully. definitely a lot more to talk about. I, I know we're, we're like half in on something. So, <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, thank you so much, David. You got it, brother. Love you. Love you. Always be willing to go for it. Always be willing to challenge yourself. I never get tired of being reminded of that. I want to thank my guest, David Christopher, for joining me on Improv and Magic. We've only scratched the surface. There's so much more to talk about, and I promise you he'll be back in the future for more, and we will pick up right where we left off next time. To learn more about Just the Funny, you can visit justthefunny.com. To learn more about David himself, check out David Christopher Improv on Facebook. And to learn more about his business, Interactive Training Solutions, you can visit interactivetrainingsolutions.com. Thanks so much, David, and thanks so much to all of you for listening. Check out my website, togetherbymyself.com, where you can learn more about my solo improv show and learn a little more about the improv workshops that I teach. Well, take care, friends, and see you next time on Improv and Magic. Improv and Magic.